Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26 and 27? We're going we're gonna to read a lot of scripture today. And it's, I grew up in a more traditional uh, climate that we sang a lot of hymns. And I think, I think this line is from the hymn, uh, The Old Rugged Cross. And the line is, uh, the old, old story will be my theme in glory. Is that right? Is that right? The old, old, old story. And I, I, I want to mention that because um, I'm, I am praying that as we read through the story of Jesus's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, to the cross of Calvary, as we cover the old, old story, that this would fall fresh on your heart today. And that it wouldn't be um, space for us uh, just to kind of look at it and go, yeah, yeah, I, I know this story. But in fact, it would become uh, personal to you, maybe in a fresh way. I know that as I've studied this over the last couple of weeks, um, last week, this week, even in next week, uh, God has been ministering to me encouraging me, teaching me, uh, and it feels fresh for me to share this with you today. And so I pray that it falls fresh for you as we engage the story of the cross of Calvary. Here, here is where we picked up last week, just in terms of uh, physical location, context. Jesus is in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the map is, this was working last service. Help me, Jeff. I think it's turned on. I'm turned on. Maybe this will get moving here. Anyway, so Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, as a physical location, and that is just outside of where the temple is uh, in, uh, in, in Jerusalem. Is it going to work or no? Not yet anyway? All right. Uh, we'll see if we can get that resolved for you. Uh, before we get to the story of Jesus being arrested and going to the cross of Calvary, let me remind you of something that Jesus said in John 10, 18. This was well before uh, this particular context on this particular day in Jerusalem. He said this to his disciples in John 10, 18. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to pick it up again. Uh, so here's the context. Middle of the night, Thursday night, Friday morning. Here's the Mount of Olives. Here's the Kidron Valley. Uh, here's where Jesus is arrested. And then the mob will take Jesus to Caiaphas' house, which is down in this area. The Praetorium Guard here where Pilate is. And Jesus will be um, hung on the cross outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. Um, here's the chronology of what we're going to look at today. Uh, pictures of the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, here's where we're headed. So here's the chronology of the passion of Christ. It begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, P um, not Peter's betrayal, um, Judas's betrayal. We looked at that last week. Um, also in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Peter's sword show. We'll talk about that a little bit when Peter gets a little excited, uh, you know, pulls out the sword, cuts off the soldier's ear. We'll talk about that. Uh, Jesus' arrest, and then the disciples flee in fear. Uh, that happens in the Garden. And then in John 18, we don't see this in our uh, passage this morning in Matthew, but there was a preliminary inquiry at Annas' house. Annas is the former high priest, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the current high priest. And so there's something that happened uh, after Jesus was arrested in the garden. They took him first to Annas' house and then to a more formal uh, trial at Caiaphas' house. Uh, and then there was the formal trial of the whole Sanhedrin, all of the um, uh, men, the elders, the scribes that were part of the ruling order of Jerusalem came to a formal trial, which was under the cover of night. It was about 5 a.m., which was the first hour that they could do anything like this was at 5 a.m. So about 5 a.m. is the trial of Jesus uh, before the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas' house. And then Jesus had to go before the Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the region. Um, the reason why that was is because they had to get 
uh, Pilate to sign off on uh, what they wanted to do with Christ, which was to crucify him. So they needed Pilate's uh, kind of stamp of approval. And then Jesus is sent to be flogged uh, in the Praetorium Guard, which is the area of Jerusalem where uh, Pilate operated from. Uh, and so that happened between around 5 and 9, and then ultimately to Golgotha, the place of the skull, outside of the city gates where Jesus was uh, crucified. I found this map this week, and thinking about the chronology, so just so that as we're reading all these passages, you can kind of maybe visualize this as it's happening. So here is, here is uh, where Jesus is arrested again. On the east side of the temple, here's the temple, here's the Kedron Valley, and there's the garden right there. So the mob will arrest Jesus, the disciples flee, and they're brought here to... Caiaphas's house. He's the high priest of Jerusalem. And then from there, they will go to the praetorium, which is right here. That's where his trial is before Pilate. And then from there, he's taken to Golgotha, right there uh, where he is hung on a Roman cross. So that's kind of where the movement of the story is happening uh, as we read through it. Again, we're going to read through all of these verses together. Um, it's in the middle of the night, Friday, and the mob has arrived with Judas to arrest Jesus. I'm going to start reading in Matthew 26. Uh, let's start by reading uh, verses 45 to 56, and I'll pick up uh, where we left off last uh, week in the Garden of Gethsemane. I lost my place from the last service benediction, so let me get this. All right. Then Jesus returned to his disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were asleep. Three times he came and asked them for prayer and support in his most urgent hour. He's overwhelmed with loneliness. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. Three times they kept falling asleep on him. He returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one that I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. And then the man stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. Matthew doesn't tell us that it's Peter. He just says one of his companions. But it was Peter from one of the other Gospels. It says it was Peter drew it out, drew out a sword, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Matthew doesn't tell us who that person is, but is anybody Bible trivia? Anybody know the name of the Caiaphas' servant that had his ear chopped off? Matt? Mal, Malchus, Malchus. So when you have Bible trivia one day and you're like, and the, and the thing comes out like, what's the name of Caiaphas' servant that Peter whacked his ear off? You're going to say it was Malchus. And they're going to be like, oh my gosh, how did you know that? Well, because Jason told me. <laughs> Malchus was the name of the high priest that Peter reacted and cut off his ear. And Jesus said these words, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels at a moment that the father will send me if I call on the, the legions of the angels of heaven? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way and at that time jesus said to the crowd to the mob of people that came to arrest him am i leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me every day i sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me but this has this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled and then the disciples deserted him and fled. Let's make a few points about the beginning of the story. Um, Ma uh, John, the Gospel of John, John 18 is the um, 
is kind of the mirror narrative of this, of this passage in Matthew 26. And in John 18, he tells us something that happens in the garden uh, that Matthew doesn't tell us. And I want to remind you of that or share that with you if you haven't heard this part of the story before. Uh, when they come to Jesus, uh, he asks him, who do you want? Who are you here for? And the answer to them was Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says in that moment, I am he. That's a huge mob of people, clubs and swords, they're coming to arrest him. And the moment that Jesus says, I am he, every single one of those soldiers immediately falls back on their backs. It's almost as if in the humanity of Jesus that we see in last week's passage, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow. In that moment, we see the divinity of Christ. And he says, I am he. And the power of that moment was so palpable that every soldier that was there to arrest him fell back. And I share that with you um, to encourage you with this. None of this was happening because Jesus is a victim. Jesus is a volunteer. He's in charge of the entire situation. He even says, look, if I want to call on my father in a moment's notice to bring 12 legions of heaven's armies, I will do it in a moment. But know that I'm not calling on them because this is happening so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. I am the sovereign Lord of glory. I'm in control of what is happening here. I will allow myself to go with you. They all fall back on their backs. This cup was not forced on Jesus. He chose to drink it for our sake. Now, this story of Peter, I think, is important to mention. And, you know, it's, it's, it's typical of Peter, right? I mean, he, he, he's, he's, uh, he's excited. Peter's always excited. And he, he says things quickly, and he does things in reaction. In this particular moment, he pulls out his sword, which I think is pretty amazing if you think about him the dude's a he's kind of a backwoods country boy from Galilee he's a fisherman and somehow he has learned how to handle a sword and to the degree that he severs the ear off of Malchus I mean that is some swordsmanship right there I mean that's like last samurai kind of stuff right there I mean it's like Tom Cruise kind of stuff but it's like it doesn't tell us like how he did that I don't know if he like grabbed it and I mean we don't know but what we do know is that Peter cut off the ear of Malchus. And here's what I want to invite you to consider in this. What do you think would have happened to Peter if Jesus didn't miraculously take Malchus's ear and heal him in the moment? Peter would have been killed. Now let's think about the providence of God for a second. The last miracle of Christ before the resurrection, in three years of ministry, it started with the, uh, with the wine, right? He turned the water to wine at the wedding in Cana. From that miracle, before the resurrection, the very last miracle of Christ was healing Malchus's ear. And how providential this was because it saved Peter's life. If you want to understand how providential this was for the gospel to go to the nations, read the book of Acts, the beginning of Acts, and what Peter, what God used Peter to do. The providence of God healing Malchus's ear saved Peter's life in his last miracle. I think it's pretty profound to consider that. Um, Jesus said what is happening has all been revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, again, he is in control. He is a sovereign Lord. If he wants to call on legions of angels, he will do it in a moment's notice, reminding us, I am not a victim here. I am fulfilling the Father's mission to save the world. And he allows himself to be taken. The disciples, they flee. They're afraid. They all leave. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it's only Jesus. And he allows himself to be taken by them. Um, think of another couple of stories when Jesus didn't allow himself to be taken. Um, beginning of his ministry, Luke chapter 4, he goes into the synagogue, he, he, he unscrolls the book of Isaiah, which talks about like the Messiah is coming to set captives free, and he goes, this is happening in your midst right here in this moment. And the people that are there in his hometown, they lose their minds, they form a mob of people, because they're like, that's Joseph's kid, we watched that kid grow up. How dare he come in here and say that he is the one that's going to lead captives free. And they literally form a mob and they try to throw Jesus off of a cliff. Do you remember this story from Luke 4? And it's this funny 
funny. It's funny. I think it's funny. Let's think about this for a second. And it says in Luke 4, But Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Like this murderous mob is forming because of what he said. And Jesus just says, and he just walks right through. Right? See, you think it's funny as well. John 10, here's another one. He's in Jerusalem now. He's not in Nazareth up in Galilee. He's in Jerusalem, and he's telling the Jews that he is Messiah. He's a long-awaited Messiah, Savior of the world. And they literally, they picked up stones to stone him because that was the Levitical law for blasphemy is that you deserve to die by stoning. And they're literally picking up stones to stone Jesus in that moment in John chapter 10. And John 10 says they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So it happened in Luke 4, it happened in John 10, it doesn't happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus did not go on his way, he did not escape their grasp in Gethsemane. Why? Because it was time for his passion. He is not a victim, he allows himself to be taken because it is time for his passion. Amen? Amen? Let's keep reading. Matthew 26, 57, I'm going to read down to 75. I don't want to miss any of the old, old story that I'm praying becomes personal to us in a fresh way today. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. So think of it this way. Don't think of, don't think of Caiaphas' house as a house. You've got to think of it as a palace. He's the high priest of Jerusalem. So it's a palace. There's a gate to get into the palace. There's a courtyard, and there's houses around the palace. And certainly one of those houses is where Caiaphas' house was. But there are houses. And so Peter's at the gate. There's probably a fire. and It's the middle of the night, so there's probably a fire happening there. That's the context in your mind to see what's happening here. But Peter follows him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered. He entered into the courtyard, and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward, and they declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer what is this testimony that these men are bringing up against you? But Jesus remained silent because it was time for his passion. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 64, yes, it is as you say. But I say all of this to you in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And then they all spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you. Now Peter, who was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath, I don't know the man. And after a little while, those who were there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them for your accent, your Galilean accent, different than the accent in Jerusalem, your Galilean accent gives you away. And then he, and then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. 
And immediately a rooster crowed, and then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside, and he wept bitterly. Um, I want to remind you of something that Jesus told Peter. When Jesus predicted to Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Something that Jesus said to Peter, and I believe it was, it was protecting Peter from uh, believing in this moment that he was condemned of God, that he was condemned of Christ. Like Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him, and he told Peter as such. But when you, when you call down curses on yourself to deny Jesus as Messiah, can you imagine the toxicity of shame and guilt that you would have been feeling in that moment? Jesus knew. It's, it's part of our humanity. When we make that mistake that we swore we would never make, when we do that thing that we swore we would never do, the overwhelming feelings of, of, of guilt, it will it'll swallow up a man. And Jesus knows that about humanity. So this is what he told, this is what he told Peter. Right after he told Peter that he was going to deny him three times, he said, but I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. And then later on in Luke 22, verse 61, it says, after Peter's denial, it said the Lord, this is Luke 22, verse 61, the Lord Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. And so the question I want to ask you to consider is, what do you think that the eyes of Jesus were saying um, when he looked at Peter? Like we know from uh, people that study language and communication that uh, the words we say have the least impact of all. It goes from the words we say to how we say the words to our body language to specifically our facial expression to specifically our eyes. So it doesn't say what Jesus said to Peter. It just says that the Lord turned and looked with his eyes at Peter. What I want to ask you to consider is what did Jesus' eyes say? And I think in our, when we think about like when when I do bad, I believe that I deserve bad. And so I think our first thought maybe in this particular conversation is, I bet, I bet Jesus' eyes were like in judgment, intense. Do you think? Could be. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to have a different lens of the eyes of Jesus. I'm going to invite you to believe that mercy means mercy. And that grace means unmerited favor. And that unconditional love actually means unconditional love. Because what I believe the eyes of Jesus was saying to Peter is, I love you even now, even in this moment. And I have a purpose for you. We think it's eyes of condemnation. That's what the enemy wants us to believe. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. The eyes of Jesus were communicating to Peter what Peter already knew. I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. It was rooting Peter in his faith and his identity in Christ. I believe that with every, everything. Why do I believe this? Because Romans 2.4 says it's the kindness of God that leads us to, tell me, repentance. It's the kindness, it's not like a condemnation of God that leads to transformation. It's the love of God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to transformation. And if you want to read the story about how Peter's life was transformed after he famously denied Jesus three times, go read the beginning of the book of Acts. He's a transformed follower, courageous proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. The rooster crows. Which means what? When a rooster crows, it's what? Daybreak. It's morning. It's Friday morning. Everything that we have just been reading was happening in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness in the secret places against Jesus. And now it's morning. It's Friday. It's good Friday. Matthew 27, 1 and 2. Early in the morning, all of the chief priests and the elders of the people came 
to the decision to put Jesus to death. And they bound him and they led him away to be handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor. Here's what you need to know about the hypocrisy of the Sanhedrin. They were breaking their own rules. The, act, the reality that they brought Jesus to Caiaphas' house and the whole Sanhedrin was there at 5 a.m. to bring false testimony against him. It was against their own rules because their own rules and their own traditions were that you didn't have a trial like this during the Passover feast. So the whole reality of it, the hypocrisy of it is palpable because they were doing exactly what they would tell anyone else that you can't do. You can't have a trial like this during Passover, and this was happening during Passover. The other rule that they break, that they broke is when a guilty verdict like this was, was pronounced, there was uh, required for a full day to pass for feelings perhaps of mercy. If you're going to give a verdict of capital punishment, their traditions, their rules were a whole day is going to happen before that's actually executed for feelings of mercy perhaps to arise. They didn't allow that to happen. Why? Because they're so blinded by their hatred and their own power and their own uh, need to get Jesus out of Jerusalem and to be done with it. And so... They have this trial, um, and they take him to Pilate. Have you ever wondered why Pilate? Why, didn't, why did the whole thing with Pilate happen? Um, what's the deal with Pilate? Why did that have to happen? Um, Jewish law, again, they would have just stoned Jesus to death right then and there under Levitical law for blasphemy, and that's what they accused him of, which is deserving of death. But they, they have to take him to Pilate because Jerusalem, Israel, is under the rule of Rome. The reason why Jesus went to the cross, that was a Gentile cross. It was a cross of Rome. And so they had to take him to Pilate because Rome is, they're under the occupation of Rome. And so Jesus dies on a Gentile form of execution, not a Jewish form of execution because of Rome. So they take him to Pilate. Verse 3, chapter 27. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and to the elders. I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and they went away, and then he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priests, they picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken through the Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies all the way down to a, a pretty minuscule prophecy in Jeremiah about 30 pieces of silver and a potter's field. Now, here's what I want you to consider with me around Judas. How far do you think grace goes? I mean, does grace, and we define grace at two of us this way, unmerited favor on unmerited favor on unmerited favor on unmerited favor. How far does it go? Just think about the story of Judas. I mean, does, does grace go to Judas like it went to Peter? One of the three occasions in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is predicting his death to his disciples, on one of those occasions, Peter, you know the story, pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, no. Like basically like, Jesus, I, I'm going I'm to go to, the, I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again. For the salvation of the world. And Peter pulls himself like, no, you won't. 
No, you won't do that. And then Jesus says what to Peter? Get behind me. How far does grace go? It went to Peter. Does it go to Judas? It went to Jason. Could you consider for a moment that the grace of Jesus went all the way to Judas? Do you see repentance in the story? It says, he, Judas, was seized with remorse. And then he publicly says, I have sinned. And then he did something about his remorse. He went and made it right. He, returned, he threw the money. So here's all I'm inviting you to consider for me, with me. I mean, this story is tragic. It is, it, is, it is all tragedy, right? His shame overwhelmed him. What he did overwhelmed him to the degree that he ends his own life. Tragic. Unforgivable? I'm just asking. I'm just asking that you consider this with me. When we read the Gospels and people respond to Jesus with a changed mind, with repentance, how does Jesus, what does Jesus do? Does he condemn them or does he offer his grace to them? I'm just inviting you to consider. Could we see Jesus and Judas and glory when we get there? Just asking. Verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. And when he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, they gave no answer. And then Pilate, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. And now it was the governor's custom at the feast. What feast? Context. What feast are they in? Passover feast. So it's a Passover feast. And the governor, the Roman governor, just does this thing every year at the Passover feast. It's the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner, like a famous prisoner, a well-known prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate, was, he was cluing in to the games of the Sanhedrin. He knew this was a spin. He knew this was all false testimony. And so he's like, I'll give him Barabbas or Jesus. I mean, certainly they're going to ask for Jesus and not Barabbas, the notorious sinner, the thug, the murderer. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. This is a Gentile Roman governor engaging this with the Sanhedrin and the crowd. Why? What crime has he committed? This isn't just. And they all shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, 
with that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility and all the people. This is such a sobering line of scripture. This is so sobering, the blindness. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and our children. And then Pilate released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and he handed Jesus over to be crucified. And the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, which is the the governor's palace now, the area of Pilate and the governor and his soldiers, the praetorium. And they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him and they stripped him. They shamed him. And they put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. And they put a staff in his right hand. And they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they, and they spit on him. They spit on the Lord of glory. And they took the staff and they struck Jesus on the head again and again. It was so bloody, flogging, beating him against the head, spitting on him, the humiliation. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. Barabbas or Jesus? Give us Barabbas. What do I do with Jesus? Crucify him. What were they saying about Jesus five days before? Count it backwards from Friday to Sunday. Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfillment of scripture and they were crying something on palm sunday to jesus what what were they saying to jesus five days before someone tell me hosanna hosanna on sunday crucify him on friday what changed hosanna the literal translation of hosanna is save us now save us right now That's who you are, Jesus. You are the military king who has come to sit on the throne of David and you have come to release us from the oppression of Rome. Now, earthly king, save us now. That was their expectation and that was their demand. Jesus came in his first advent as a suffering servant. He will come again, know this, he will come again as the reigning king of the new heaven and the new earth. And it will be military. It will be military. But in the first advent, it was a suffering servant. Jesus didn't meet their demands. He didn't meet who they said he should be. Save us now. And now they say, five days later, crucify him. Hosanna is different than hallelujah. The second song that we sang this morning is hallelujah. Hallelujah is a response that simply means praise be to God or praise the Lord. Hosanna was a demand of Jesus. Hallelujah is a response to who Jesus really is. They were saying Hosanna and then they would say crucify him. It's the Passover. It's the holy day of Passover. For the Jews, Pilate is going to release someone as tradition, and they demand that Barabbas goes free. And if this part of the story doesn't trigger your justice system, let me help it trigger your justice system. A murderer, a notorious murderer, who is on death row, goes free. And Jesus is flogged, mocked, spit upon, led to a Roman cross. Is that fair? That ain't justice. But I'll tell you what it is. Mercy to Barabbas. 
It's favor to Barabbas. It's a substitute for Barabbas. It ain't fair, but it's the gospel. And for the gospel to fall fresh on you today, here's what I'm inviting you to consider. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. That's our cross. That's what we deserve. And Jesus takes the place of Barabbas, of me and of you. And if that doesn't stir us in gratitude, I don't know another story to tell you today. Barabbas goes free. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Barabbas goes free. And Jesus goes to the cross and they're going out and they met a man from Cyrene, which is in Africa. He's an African. And they met a, na- a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they, the Roman soldiers, they forced Simon to carry the cross. Now, when we first read this, we go, oh, man, oh, man, this, this, this was a guy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Where Jesus was crucified on Golgotha is outside of the city gates. It was a major area of a thoroughfare. So people were coming and going in this area of the city all the time. And that's where the Romans put crosses to execute people so that people that are passing through would go, I don't know what that's ever happened to me. Simon was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or he was in the right place at the right time. Here's what you might not know about Simon. Simon. Mark 5.21. I think there's a typo in this. I was corrected. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by. He was just passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Here's what you might not know about Simon and Alexander and Rufus. You just like Alexander and Rufus. Okay. I mean, I think of Rufus like when my kids were growing up, it's like there was a cartoon named Rufus and it was a terrible, terrible, like Rufus. Any other parents remember that cartoon? Listen to what happens. He was forced to carry the cross of Jesus. But he, it would become personal to Simon. This is how personal it became to him. Paul says this at the end of Romans 16. And greet Rufus. Who is Rufus? Rufus is the son of Simon. And Paul says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, Simon's wife, who has been a mother to me. Simon, wrong place, wrong time, right place, right time. Simon and his whole family became disciples of Jesus. The cross transforms everyone that moves the old, old story of the cross, not from a story, but to a personal reality for my own life. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Yes, Jesus is also my Savior and your Savior and Simon and Alexander, and Rufus, and his mother, all the way to the Apostle Paul. Isn't that amazing to see? I'm off track. I'm way off track. Where did I stop reading? Oh, my goodness. Here we are. Okay. And they forced him to carry the cross, and they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, where they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall but after tasting it he refused to drink it and when they had crucified him they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down they kept watch over him there and above his head they placed a written charge against him this is jesus the king of the jews two robbers were crucified with him one on his right and one on his left and those who passed by hurled insults at him shaking in their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. 
And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down then, now off the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. We'll let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the robbers who crucified, who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Another, another thing we know about one of those from one of the other gospel writers We know that one of those criminals that were crucified next to Jesus went where that very day? He went where? To paradise. But before he goes to paradise, he was hurling insults and he was mocking Jesus. How how far does grace go? Does it go to the criminal on the cross who is mocking and hurling insults at Jesus as Jesus is suffering on the cross? Yes, it goes that far. It definitely goes that far. And from the sixth hour, which is 12 p.m., Jesus had already been on the cross for three hours, until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., darkness came over all the land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's that moment when his physical agony and his emotional, relational, spiritual agony, he is taking literally on the entire reality of the evil and the sin of the world. And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. They're still mocking him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. I don't think we often realize how long the Lord's suffering took. Even before the cross, all the mocking, all the insults, all the spitting, all the flogging, all of the... All all of the hitting, all the slapping, all that was taken. But six hours on the cross. Six hours on my cross. Six hours on your cross. And during the last three hours, the text says that darkness covered the whole earth. Go back to the very beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. What was hovering over the earth at the very beginning of our Bible? darkness verse 3 what's the first thing that God created in the creation he created that was giving light to darkness that was hovering over the earth they're celebrating Passover the Jews are celebrating Passover and before the ancient Hebrews Uh, were released from captivity to Pharaoh in Egypt, God was sending, through Moses, plague after plague after plague. The tenth plague was the angel of death. And then the the blood of the Lamb, we talked about all this last week, and the blood painted over the doorpost of your heart, and the angel, angel of death passed over your house. But one of the plagues, as a reminder... If you don't remember this or you don't know this, one of the plagues to Egypt was darkness. Do you remember that? And Exodus 10.21 says it was a darkness that can be felt. Darkness in Exodus 10 in between 12 p.m. and 3 p.m. represents God's judgment on the sin of the world that Jesus was taking on himself. One a medical journal that I read this week said the major pathophysiological effect of the crucifixion of Christ was interference with normal respiration. So accordingly, quote, death resulted primarily from shock and exhaustion asphyxia. Medically, asphyxia is when the body is deprived of oxygen causing death by suffocation. Jesus allowed himself to suffocate 
to death so that you and I can be forgiven and free. We'll close here. Worship team, you can come back. Go back to Peter for a moment. And the Lord's love for Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And I'm looking at you with eyes of love, even in the moment of your denial. Now I want you to place yourself in the story. And come for a moment to the Lord's love for you. Jesus said this in uh, Luke's account of the cross, Luke twenty-two thirty-four. 34. Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The cross is the scandal of the love of God, the scandal of grace, the scandal of love, and the, the justice of God all coming together so that you could be forgiven and free and reconciled to the Father. That was my cross. And Jesus went there in my place. And that was your cross. And Jesus went there in your place. You were held captive. And now you are free. You were in darkness. And now we have the light of the world. Amen? Last thing, there's a difference between the light that God created in Genesis 1-3 and the light that will be in the new heaven and the new earth. There's a big difference in the light. In the creation in Genesis 1-3, it was the sun and the moon. It's the light. It's the first thing that God created. Light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. If you know me, you don't walk in darkness because I'm the light of the world. To the degree that when Jesus comes again... Revelation 21 and 22, when Jesus comes back, there'll be a new heaven and new earth. And I want to remind you of this. This, this is how a peace that passes understanding overcomes our fears. This is how hope rises up from the ashes of our lives. This is how we hold on to hope no matter what, because this is the promise of God to us, because Jesus came and died and he rose again for us. Revelation 21, 23. The city... The new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. The city does not need the sun. It's a different light, you guys. It's a different light. Are you with me right now? It's not the sun. It's not the moon. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is the light. And the new heaven and the new earth it's only Jesus that lights it all up for us, and that is all we need. His grace is sufficient, wholly, completely sufficient for us. Lord, that was my cross, and it became your cross. That was our cross, and you took it on yourself. And I pray and hope that we are stirred in a fresh gratitude today that our only response is hallelujah. Praise be to the living God. Praise be to the Son of Man, Jesus our Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.